You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, this morning's message is a, is a standalone message before we begin a new series for the semester next week. And when I chose the passage a, a month or so ago, I didn't realize how appropriate it would be to preach this message on this day, at this time of the year, in the life of this church. And in my preparation this week, it was a great encouragement to me to see how these different pieces came together. So today's message is going to tie together four things. Kids, you can, here's four things to listen for. So after the service, your folks can ask you, did you hear the four things? And then you can, you can let them know what we said about them. So I'm going to tie together where we've been. So it's the book of Leviticus. Where we're going, that's the book of Hebrews, beginning next week. The day that we celebrate today, which is New Year's Day, and the season that we're celebrating now, which is Christmas. So Leviticus, Hebrews, New Year's, Christmas. Those are the four things that I hope to tie together today as we look at Philippians chapter 2. So let me just begin with six really brief observations. Five of them are really brief. One of them is sort of brief observations on this passage, okay? So follow along here. Number one is this. The Philippians are an obedient people. Philippians are an obedient people. Unlike Galatians or Corinthians, you remember in those letters, Paul's got all kinds of correction and admonishment and rebuke to offer to those congregations. Philippians is a little bit unusual because Paul doesn't do any of that. Aside from those two ladies who got (laughs) immortalized forever in the Bible as the ones who couldn't get along, everything else in this book is really encouraging and commendatory. Paul um, is is glad-hearted in his affirmation of the Philippians. So he says here, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, much more in my absence, you've always obeyed whether Paul is present or not. So this people is an obedient people. That's number one. Number two, in light of that, Paul exhorts them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's number two, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. Number three, this includes doing everything that they do without grumbling or disputing. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Number four, this is important, this kind of obedience stands out. This obedience makes them blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom they shine like stars in the cosmos. Now, this is, in other words, this obedience that they've always been doing and that he's commending them to do more of, working out their salvation without grumbling or disputing, this is an obedience that shines. This is an obedience that shines. That's actually the banner over the message today is the obedience that shines. In, in that, when he says that there about the crooked and perverse generation, um, if you've got little footnotes in your Bible, it probably points you back to Deuteronomy 32. That's what Paul's quoting or alluding to here. And there Moses is lamenting that Israel has dealt corruptly with God. They've, they've not obeyed God. This is what he says there. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a quick, crooked and twisted generation. So in, in Deuteronomy, it's a lament that the people are a crooked and twisted generation. They're not blemished. Um, they're corrupt and they're no longer his children. 
Paul sort of turns that passage on its head and says, now in the new covenant, these Philippians, you are the children of God. You are unblemished. And now you stand out from a crooked and perverse generation, just like the stars stand out from the darkness of the night. So that's number four. This obedience stands out. Number five, this obedience will make Paul proud on the day of Christ. He's going to rejoice on the day of Christ in the fruitfulness of his labor. So um, back in chapter one, Paul had spoken of his life in the flesh as one of fruitful labor. If I remain in the flesh, if, I don't, if I'm not executed, that will mean fruitful labor for me. That's what actually how he defines what it means to live is Christ. When he says that, live is Christ, die is gain. Well, die is gain, we know what that means. It means you honor Jesus in dying by counting him more valuable than everything you lose when you die. What does it mean to live is Christ? For Paul, it means fruitful labor. It means fruitful labor on earth for the joy and progress and faith of other people. And so Paul says, if you, if you obey, if you have an obedience that shines, then on the day of Christ, that's what I've been working for. And I will be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul wants not only an obedience that shines, but one that makes him proud, one in which he can boast. And then finally, Paul links here his labor and the Philippians obedience in terms of the sacrificial system. Okay, and so this is where Leviticus comes in. So this is number one, Leviticus. How is that here? Well, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here's the basic picture. And, and we actually, because we've been in Leviticus, understand this. I think there was a time for me where any time offering got mentioned, it was just one big bucket of offerings and sacrifices. I didn't have categories. But even through this series in the last semester, it was like, oh, there's different offerings. So here's the picture. You remember the ascension offering, the whole burnt offering is like the baseline offering in the Old Testament. It's, it's the one where they lay the hands on the animal and sort of that animal becomes the representative. Then they slay the animal, sprinkle the blood on the altar, arrange the body parts on the altar, and then the whole thing is burned up and ascends to God in the smoke. Okay, and, and the, the centrality of that offering is this is a total surrender to God. This is all of me to all of you, God. That's, that's what the ascension offering was all about. Well, Paul here and, and throughout his writings basically says every Christian is an ascension offering. So you remember in Romans 12, right? Therefore, by the mercy of God, offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. That's the idea is that in the Old Testament, it was you got to put your hands on the animal. Now in the new covenant, because of Jesus, you just offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You are an ascension offering. Every Christian is an ascension offering. That's the baseline offering in the new covenant. But here's the thing that's interesting. You remember when we were in Leviticus, there weren't just ascension offerings. There was a whole bunch of other offerings, sin offerings, purification offerings, peace offerings, and one of them was called the tribute offering. And if you remember when I unpacked that sacrificial system back in September or whenever it was, we talked about that tribute offering um, as kind of the side to the main course. Remember, so like the ascension offering is like the main course, and then this was like the fries with that. Remember this? You had, the, you had the hamburger and you had the fries with that. Okay, the tribute offering is that. Well, um, we, in Leviticus, it doesn't talk about this, but in Numbers, we get that not only were there grain offerings that were sort of tribute offerings, there were drink offerings. So in addition to putting all the animals, stacking it up and burning it up, they would add some grain, that's the side of fries, and then you get a drink with it, okay? 
Like, and they would take some wine and they would pour it out on the altar, okay, as it ascends in the smoke. And so you had the, the main course and then you had the fries and the drink. Okay, this is, the, this is the Old Testament deal. So now here, here we come into the New Testament and what's Paul saying? He says, look, my labor on behalf of you Philippians is like that side of a drink on top of your offering of your faith. So you are an ascension offering, offering yourself wholly to God, all of me, to all of you, O oh God. And he says, my labor is like a side on that. Like that's what my, I'm being poured out, my labor, my running, even unto death, because Paul thinks I could die. I will go all the way. I will pour myself all the way out. That's a side on your offering. Does that make sense? Like now there's, there's this picture of the Christian life in which every one of us is offering ourselves to God for ourselves, and we're pouring ourselves out as sides on other people's offerings. Right? So I'm an offering for me, and I'm trying to help you. I'm the drink offering for you. And Paul says, that's what I'm doing for you. And then he says to the Philippians, and you should do that for me. And so it's a mutual giving. It's a mutual running and laboring. So that's a wonderful biblical Levitical picture of the church and the Christian life, how we're interwoven. Each of us total surrender to God, and each of us an ascension offering daily to God, but each of us also a drink offering for others, laboring, running, pouring ourselves out so that they can offer themselves by faith. That's the sixth observation. I want to take those now, and I want to press deeper and press them home. And here's the question I'm asking as I do that. That's just six observations about the passage. Now, here's my question. What would you say, what do you say, to an obedient people during Christmas at the start of a new year. Okay, what's a good word for an obedient people at that time? And I'm accenting that New Year's piece because it's a time here in our culture where we often try to hit the reset button. Okay, that's why whether it's New Year's, whether you do the resolutions or not, we kind of all, this is just culturally the way it works, at this time of year we kind of say reset. Refresh, take stock. I want to, how did things go? How are things going to be? Anything change, any changes I want to make? Any cuts I want to make? Any ads I want to make? And then we launch into a new year. So what do you say to, a new, uh, to an obedient people on New Year's Day? And answer, here's what Paul says. You exhort them to an obedience that shines. You say, hey, make sure your obedience, when you do it this year, Make sure it's a shining obedience. Make sure it's an obedience that makes Paul proud and God happy. So for the rest of this sermon, I want to unpack what is an obedience that shines, that makes Paul proud and makes God happy. And I've got three basic points. I'll just give them to you at the front end so that you can be listening for them. It's three things. Prepositions matter. Your mindset matters. And your spirit matters. Prepositions matter, your mindset matters, and your spirit matters. Prepositions matter. Why do I say that? Well, um, Christian obedience is a special kind of obedience. Paul's main exhortation there in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so here we're seeing kind of the mystery, the biblical mystery of God's action and human action. Your work and God's work. How do they, how do they work together? Well, here's, the, here's why prepositions matter. Christians don't work for their salvation. It's a preposition, for. You don't work for your salvation. 
Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So later in Philippians, if you were to keep reading, Paul says in chapter three, he's seeking to gain Christ to be found in him. And he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but a righteousness from God that is based on faith. So Paul says, I'm not, we don't work, Christians don't work for our own salvation. We receive salvation as a gift, but here's where the prepositions come in, right? We don't work for it, but we do work out our own salvation and we do so because God works in us to will and to work. So you hear those three prepositions? You don't work for, but you do work out what God works in. So prepositions matter. Christian obedience is an unusual thing. So we are working out what God is working in, and where is God working? What, what level is he working at? Well, according to the passage, he's working at the level of your will, the level of your heart, your affections, your desires, and your choices. God's down there working at that level and he's working on your heart. He's, he's changing your heart, he's transforming your heart so that then with that changed heart, here comes you working that out in public, in your obedience where everybody else can see. And here's the preview of Hebrews, okay? At the end of the book of Hebrews, the author there strikes a remarkably similar note to what Paul says here. So just listen to the similarities. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, listen, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, so there's obedience, there's work it out, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in, in Philippians, it's he's equipping us, he's working in us what is pleasing in his sight. In Philippians, it's we're working out what he's working in to will and to work for his good pleasure, what's pleasing in his sight. It's the same basic idea expressed in similar words. And so here's the first thing about prepositions matter. We got to start here. The obedience that shines is an obedience that knows that those prepositions really matter. You are not, this year, you are not working for your salvation. You're working out your salvation. And you're doing so because the sovereign God of the universe is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the obedience that shines. Number two, the obedience that shines, the, the, that makes Paul proud, that makes God happy, it has a particular mindset, a particular way of framing reality. I want you to think of this, I'm gonna talk about framing or, or a mindset, and I want you to think of it in terms of a double vision. So I'm gonna unpack double vision. There's two things you're gonna be looking at, okay? Listen to Philippians 2, one to five. You've probably got it there, just look back at the front of that chapter and listen for the word mind. Listen for the word mind, okay? So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Literally, it's being the same soul, same soul, and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You hear the number of times that the word mind shows up. There's a certain mindset that we're to have. Paul's joy will be complete if the Philippians have a united, the same mindset, the same love, the same soul, the same single-mindedness, and in particular, he highlights what they're keeping an eye on. What are they supposed to look for? He says, they look not to their own interests, but the interests of others. So what are they looking at? Not to my own selfish desires, that selfish ambition, vainglory, not looking there, not pride. Instead, they count other people more important than themselves. I'm looking to your interests. I'm looking at your stuff, not my stuff. Your stuff's the stuff that I'm looking at, not my stuff. Does that make sense? So when we're, they place their happiness in the good of other people. And so that's the first part of that double vision, that the mindset that matters is we look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That's what we look at. That's, That's part one of the double vision. So you're looking for the interests of others. But here's the second part. Back to Philippians 2.12. We look for the approval of God. Why did I say that? Look Look at verse 12. Paul says, as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Why is that significant? The Philippians were not obeying in order to impress Paul. They they were obeying in order to please God. And this is a major temptation for the obedient. Okay? Whose approval do you have your eye on? So even you may be, I'm trying to look to others' interests, but do you have your eye also on somebody else's approval in doing it? So that you do it when they're around, but not otherwise? Like if, whose approval do you have your eye on? If it's fundamentally a human being, then you will only obey as long as they have their eyes on you. If you're doing it for their approval, you will obey as long as they're watching. But you will obey in their presence, not in their absence. An obedience that only appears in the presence of certain people does not shine. It does not make Paul proud and it does not make God happy. So listen to Paul echo this same theme elsewhere in his letters. He's typically, this comes up when he's talking to bond servants and their obedience to their earthly masters. So listen, this is Ephesians six. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. It's interesting, same same language as Philippians. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Listen to the same theme in Colossians chapter 3, 22 to 24. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, 
Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So again, common denominator here. It's not wrong, let me just be clear, it's not wrong to desire to please certain people with your obedience. I think it's perfectly normal and good for you if you're at your job to want your boss to think you did a good job. Or if you're a child, it's good for you to obey because you want your parents to be pleased with your obedience. That's perfectly normal. But, but, the issue comes when that's the only reason or the fundamental reason that you obey. You only obey when your parents are around. You only obey when your boss is around or when the pastors are around, or when those people in your community group are around, or whoever it is, whatever people it might be, your obedience all of a sudden pops out when those people are around. That's not an obedience that shines. That's just people pleasing. It's just eye service to be seen by men. So let's just connect this for a second to the prepositions from before. So. The obedience that shines, if we bring in those, those uh, Colossians and Ephesians path passages, it's all about sincerity of heart. Listen, the obedience that shines is an obedience from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's the way we talk around our house about the obedience that we're trying to cultivate in our children, is we want an obedience from the inside out, not the outside in. So like kids, just for a second here, how many of you are obedient when your parents are watching, okay? Like when your parents are watching you and they say, hey, I want you to do this, go clean your room, and then they follow you into the room. How many of you like, okay, I'll obey now. I'll, I'll start putting stuff away. And then they say, turn around, they walk out of the room, and then what happens? How, now, kids, how about this? How many of you have ever felt frustrated maybe because you feel like your parents are always following you around, keeping that eye on you. Like, like they follow you around to see if you're gonna follow through on the thing that they told you to do. Okay, here's the deal. What your parents want, what your parents want from you is obedience from the inside out. They want obedience from the heart, not eye service. Not eye service. They want obedience from the heart. They want to be able to say like, Paul, look, you always obey whether I'm here or not. That's what, that's what they want from you. They don't just want you to meet the standard with your actions. They want you to love the standard from your heart. They want God to work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, not just for their good pleasure. They want, that's the kind of obedience that shines, that makes Paul and your parents proud and makes God and your parents happy. And so here's, here's an exhortation to anybody who's under 18 in this room. This year, make it your goal to obey God and to honor your parents, whether they are present or absent. And everybody else, do the same thing. There are not two standards here. You never outgrow God's demand that you obey from the inside out. So summarizing the mindset, the obedience that shines comes from a double vision. 
You look to the interests of others, not to your own, not selfishness, but to the interests of others, and you're looking for the approval and the happiness of God. You don't put yourself first. You don't turn your desires into other people's demands. Instead, you seek the good of others. You aim to bless them and to bring them joy, and you do so because God is watching, and you want to make him happy by obeying from the inside out. Finally, the spirit matters. Your spirit matters. Okay, so I wonder if I asked you, what is the biggest temptation for obedient people? Not disobedient people. You can find the temptation for disobedient people real fast. It's the disobedience, right? It's whatever thing led them to disobey. You go, that's their temptation. Okay, what's the temptation for an obedient people? Here's my thought. The biggest temptation for obedient people is to obey, but with sufficient amounts of grumbling. That's why Paul, I think, says here to a people who are obeying always, do everything that you do without grumbling or disputing, without murmuring or complaining, without sulking or arguing, without whining or back talk. Because the temptation for an obedient people is to offer obedience, but for it to be a frustrated, muttering, murmuring obedience. So let's just get clear on this. It's not enough to obey. How you obey matters. How you obey matters. The spirit beneath your actions matters to God. Here's, here's God's standard. And again, this is how we talk in our house. This is how we talk, the, the folks talk at our kids' school. This is what we're trying to cultivate, not only in them, but what we're trying to live out for ourselves. Here it is. When you obey, you obey all the way, right away, cheerfully. All the way, right away, with a happy heart. That's the standard. That's the standard. This means, here's what this means. Partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Grumbling obedience, frustrated obedience, irritated obedience is disobedience. So let's press that into the corners, okay? I'm willing to bet that everybody in here as you enter the new year has sources of frustration in your lives. I have sources of frustration in my life, things that aren't going my way. Could be your boss, could be a coworker, could be a tone of voice or an annoying habit from your spouse, child, parents, friend, roommate, it might be a deep, unmet desire in your heart, maybe like the desire to be married. So whatever the frustration is, how often do you find yourself attempting to do the right thing, like to obey God, I'm gonna obey, Lord, while muttering and murmuring about the hardship? Like we say to ourselves, this is self-talk, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing, but there will be enough reluctance and grumbling in doing it that everyone will know what it is costing me. 
Like maybe there's a, there's a hitch. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's a, there's a hitch in your obedience, an edge to your obedience, a self-pity in your obedience. Okay? Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Some of us, when we do this, we grumble directly at God. Sometimes this is what we do. Like, why is he doing this to me? Why is he doing this to me? Or we grumble about our circumstances. That's like the little more pious way to do it. You don't actually grumble about him because you know that's not good. But you grumble about all of the circumstances in your life which he put there and which you know and believe and confess that he sent into your life for your good. And you grumble and we complain. Others of us though don't grumble about him or the circumstances. We grumble about other people. Okay, and this is just another, we disguise, we disguise our complaints against God by focusing them on the people around us. And we have all sorts of rationalizations, I know I do, for this. Like, I'm not grumbling about God, God, I'm not grumbling about you, I'm just being honest about their failures. I'm just being honest about the sins of other people. And it's like, are you really being honest? Because here's the thing, here's a distinction that really matters, okay? It's important to distinguish faithful groaning from ungodly grumbling. This is a fundamental, basic Christian distinction. Back in the book of Exodus, we we dwelt on this in a couple of different sermons. There's there's a distinction between lamenting and sulking. So let's just think about that. What's the difference between lamenting and sulking? Groaning, lamenting, that can be faithful. They can be faithful responses to real pain. But often the difference is honesty. When the pain comes, do you take it to God directly, forthrightly, sincerely? Lord, this is hard. Okay, if you're doing that, that's groaning. That's lamenting. And that can be done faithfully. But often what we do instead is we have the pain and it comes out sideways. And we talk about God behind his back as though he can't hear, kind of muttering into our shirt. Oh, it's always like that. Or we do it out loud and we just make it about other people. We make our complaints about God's wisdom are disguised as observations about other people. And so the key question for us here when we think about grumbling is this, where's the pain go? Where's your pain go? Do you bring it to the Lord as part of offering all of you to all of him? Or does it just simmer on a low boil in your soul and come out in a kind of frustrated, edgy service and a sulky, grumbling obedience? You can press more here a little bit, right? Married folks, I'll say this. Grumbling, grumbling obedience is a marriage killer. It is a marriage killer. It's usually a sign, I know when it's, I see it in my own heart that you're in a comparison trap and that you're keeping score. Okay? Like you're, you're asking, you're, you're, these are the questions running through your head. Who's got the tougher job? Who has sacrificed more in this relationship? Grumbling and complaining are often outworkings of self-pity, which are just, just a really subtle and disguised form of selfishness. Selfishness comes out as a self-pity, and that self-pity manifests as a kind of grumbling about your life, a comparison. So here's the question for us. Here, beginning of the year, starting fresh, how are we doing with our marital obedience? 
with, our, with the keeping of our marriage vows, to have and to hold in richer and poorer, sickness and in health, husbands as you lead and you love your wife, wives as you honor and obey your husbands, are you keeping score? Are, or are you keeping short accounts? Are you keeping short accounts? Ask it this way. Will the record of wrongs from 2022 follow you into 2023? Like, do you have in your head, like you're gonna pull that out, that list, you're gonna pull it out today, next week, next month, because it's just simmering on that low boil of self-pity in your soul. What's the spirit beneath your obedience? Is it glad-hearted, grateful, cheerful? Rejoice with me and I'm gonna rejoice with you as we seek to obey the Lord together. Widen it out, family, parenting, everything else. Here we are, eighth day of Christmas. How's everybody doing on the eighth day of Christmas? Right, Christmas break, that's what they call it, right? How many of you feel like it was a break? Many of us, right, have been cooking and cleaning for days. You didn't know you had that many dishes. You had to buy some more just to make sure that you could cover it all. And you've been setting them up and then putting them in the dishwasher and cleaning them and cooking and all the preparations that went into everything. You've been showing hospitality, praise God. But here's 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality without grumbling. So how are we doing? Does, does that resentment or bitterness come out? Does it come out sideways in a tone of voice, in a frustration at others? You find yourself saying, self-talk again, nobody appreciates all that I do around here. Nobody appreciates how many presents I wrapped, how many details I managed, how much time I spent trying to make everything special. It's there and it's just churning. And listen, when I say that, I am not for one minute excusing selfishness and ingratitude on the part of other people, okay? Like they could really, the family members that are being ungrateful could really be ungrateful, but here's the, here's the thing. You may not use the failures of other people to justify your own grumbling disobedience. Your grumbling does not help them and it only harms you. There's a difference between addressing sin, when there's real sin, there's a difference between addressing sin and grumbling about unaddressed sin. Those are not the same. There's a difference between addressing sin directly or passive aggressively murmuring about unaddressed sin. And so which, which one are we doing? Are we doing all things without grumbling and complaining? Or try this scenario, got one more here. So you're in the room, you're in a room, and you're working on something. Something may be important, or you're relaxing. Could be either one. Dads, maybe this is you trying to get some work done over Christmas break. Mom, this is maybe you trying to get a, a little break. And then all of a sudden, from the other room, you hear unmistakably the sound of quarreling. A fight breaks out. Okay? Or maybe you're dad, and you hear disobedience to your wife. The kids disobeyed your wife in the other room. And so you sit there for a minute to see, is this going to resolve itself or not? and you're just praying, please resolve itself. But it doesn't. And so now, you've got to interrupt whatever it is you were doing to go into the other room to deal with it. Because you're your dad, you're the head of the home, 
You're responsible to reprove, correct, and discipline in your house, and so God, I'm going to obey you. But here's the thing, will your obedience shine in the other room? Or are you gonna walk into a big mess of sin and bring more sin? Because grumbling obedience, frustrated obedience, exasperated obedience is just another form of disobedience. And it's, it's a remarkable thing how often we can do this. We see a big mess of sin and we think, you know what might help? <laughs> if I just bring some more of it and dump it in there. <laughs> it's, it's, and then it's, it is comical. It's, it's okay to laugh at it because it is comical. I think the angels like, are both appalled and think it's funny. Like how can they do it again? Like we're called to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But are we pursuing that task with joyfulness and gladness of heart heartily? Or are we always asking, how many times do I have to say it? How many times do I have to tell them to clean the room or take out the trash? Well, how many times does God have to tell you to shepherd your children with joy and to be the smile of God to your children? (laughs) Do we obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart? So... The obedience that shines, that makes Paul proud and God happy, is an obedience that works out what God is working in, that has a godly mindset that looks to the interests of others and looks for the approval of God. And it's an obedience that gives and sacrifices and labors and runs for the good of others without grumbling or complaining, but instead gladly spends and is spent for the soul of others. Gladly spend and be spent. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Now I wanna close by connecting all of this to Christmas. The connection in this passage between God's work and our work between what he's working in and what we are working out is defined there as holding fast the word of life. That's the connection. The humble, loving mindset that we are to have, he says in chapter two, verse five, we have in Christ Jesus. And the spirit that animates our obedience is the spirit of joy in Jesus. And that's why at the center of this passage, is the person and work of Jesus, who though in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You have never stooped lower than Jesus. You've never humbled yourself like Jesus. We've never run or labored for the good of others at greater cost to ourselves than Jesus. You've never poured yourself out. I've never poured myself out for the blessing of others like Jesus did. I've never obeyed with greater sacrifice than Jesus is. So look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him ran his race, endured the cross. Your obedience shines when it flows from faith, from from holding fast to that word. Which brings us to the table. 
We say in our Christmas catechism, what kind of season is Christmas? It is a season of joy. And, and why are we joyful? Because Jesus has come, the Son of God, the light of the world, Emmanuel, and he offers, us, offers himself to us here at this table so that then we might offer ourselves to God and then pour ourselves out for others with great joy so that we shine with his light. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I'm gonna invite the pastors to come for the bread. It is gluten-free as always. We'll distribute it, you can hold it, we'll eat it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.